Hola, and welcome back everyone to my show, the Nasty Pasty Podcast. How's everyone been? Have you missed me? Probably not, eh? Well, well, I'm back in your lug holes regardless, and yes, we do have a slightly tweaked schedule, but it's essentially the same deal as before. Due to little old me being introduced indirectly to video nasties as a 16-year-old due to a rather inconspicuous car boot sale purchase from my mum, I soon became embroiled in a frantic research and DVD purchasing frenzy, swatting up on what I considered to be one of the most ridiculous and embarrassing incidents in British history. Of course, in light of recent events, this has to be seen in context, but we won't get political so early. I am, of course, referring to the video Nasty's Incident, where the government panicked that children suddenly had access to violent gore fests on VHS due to the medium rising in popularity without any formal guidelines or safeguards in place. I'll be the first to admit that there absolutely should be safeguards in place, but I take issue with those controls extending to adults, completely occluding certain films from our living room viewing. There was a list of films, the video nasties, which became out of bounds for many years. Until now, of course, when everyone's realised just how inoffensive most of them actually are. Instead of talking about those films, however, I try to illustrate the ludicrousness of the situation by looking at similar titles that were out during the same era and comparing them to the nasties. Quite often in recent episodes, I've fascinatingly found that there were a few films which were unofficially snatched up by the police, even though they weren't on the official lists. So, that's almost become a sub-objective of the show. The usual format is to cover two films back-to-back which have a connective theme or genre, so why change it now? Before my holiday to Spain, I just finished up several episodes on both child cults and creature features. We're dropping the kids off now, though, and moving on to something else, which this week is small killers. This doesn't mean small time, of course, where a killer only executes a handful of people. This is referring to killers who are actually very small in stature. So for you today, we've got 1982's Basket Case by Frank Henenlotter and 1988's Ratman by Giuliano Carnimeo. If you're willing to get going, then let's get analysing our first pint-sized slasher. As a Dr. Liftlander leaves his house in the evening, nearby sounds of an intruder lurking in the bushes alarms him, causing him to run back inside. After unsuccessfully trying to alert the police, the doctor locks himself inside, but is attacked by an assailant with a strangely bulbous hand, who tears parts of his face off and killing him. Shortly after, a young man called Dwayne checks into a hotel in New York bearing a large basket, asking to stay for a few nights. After procuring some food, it's revealed that something is living inside the basket which Duane feeds, as well as some medical documents belonging to the doctor from the film's opening, still stained with his blood. When one of the deadbeats from the hotel reception snoops around Duane's room, a prostitute called Casey from across the hall notices and drives him off, informing Duane to be vigilant. 
The next day, Duane goes to a clinic to search for one of the doctors in the documents, a Dr. Needleman, where the receptionist Sharon takes a liking to the boy, offering to give him a tour around New York City. Going into the appointment, Needleman asks him to take his clothes off for an examination and finds a large suspicious scar on his torso. On his way out, Duane plans a date with the delighted Sharon and then goes to the cinema, where an opportunist steals Duane's basket. When the thief opens it up, he's attacked by whatever is inside, while Dr. Needleman frantically attempts to call a colleague called Lifflander before going on to his other colleague, Dr. Cutter. He tells her of Duane's visit and his suspicions, but she dismisses them as paranoid ramblings. When Sharon closes the clinic for the night, leaving Needleman alone, Duane re-enters with the basket and lets the thing contained inside out. Needleman soon notices that something's amiss when the door to his clinic is burst inwards, and switching the light on, he's suddenly shocked by a humanoid head and trunk with underdeveloped arms attached to the wall, which violently attacks him, gouging his face and ripping his body in half, before the thing returns to Duane with Needleman's address book. The next morning, Duane rewards the creature by buying him food and renting a TV for the day, while he leaves to go on a date with Sharon. Becoming agitated, the creature goes mad and wrecks the hotel room, destroying the TV and attracting the attention of the hotel owner and the tenants. The same deadbeat guy tries to enter the room to steal Duane's money, only to be taught a lesson by the creature, who mutilates his face and kills him. Feeling some kind of connection with the act, Duane realises what's happening and rushes home to find the police are interrogating everyone there. After avoiding suspicion when the creature hides in the toilet, Duane goes out to a bar and drunkenly encounters Casey. With the pair of them getting drunk, Duane spills the beans that inside the basket is his brother, a deformed parasitic twin who was removed from Duane when they were kids. In a flashback, the pair's father disowned them when their mother died in childbirth, causing him to christen the twin Belial after a biblical demon, and when his sister-in-law tries to raise the children herself, he spitefully invites three surgeons, Lifflander, Needleman and Cutter, to carry out separative surgery on the pair to kill Belial in order to give Duane a normal life. Despite both Duane's and Belial's objections, the surgery goes ahead and Belial is separated from his brother and left to die. Duane rescues him from a trash bag where the doctors have disposed of him, and back at the house, the pair construct a machine which ploughs into their father and cuts him in half in revenge. When the aunt returns, she takes care of the pair until her death, which has now caused Belial to rely on Duane to get their revenge on the doctors who separated the brothers. After getting back home, Casey is curious and opens the basket, only to find it empty. She goes to her room and retires for the night, suddenly becoming frightened at the sight of Belial underneath her pillows. But as before, he has disappeared when aid arrives. The next morning, Duane takes Belial to Dr. Cutter's veterinary practice, who becomes suspicious when he mentions Lifflander. Belial bursts out of the basket and attacks her, ripping out her tongue and shoving her face into a drawer of scalpels, impaling and killing her. Escaping back home, Sharon comes to Duane and informs him of Needleman's death. The pair begin to make love, which angers Belial to the point of bursting out of the basket, frightening Sharon and causing Duane to eject her from the building quickly. While Duane sleeps, Belial awakens and telepathically deduces where Sharon lives, heading there and causing Duane to dream what he is seeing. Duane awakens upon realising that he's groping Sharon, whilst Sharon herself awakens to Belial sexually assaulting her and choking her to death. Angry, Duane arrives and snatches Belial away from her corpse, and returns to the hotel violently arguing with his brother. 
when Casey and the rest of the hotel's tenants walk in to quell his anger, Belial bursts out in front of everyone and attacks his brother's groin before knocking him out of the window. As the pair fall, Belial grabs onto the hotel sign whilst choking his brother in the other. And when Dwayne seems to succumb to his injuries, Belial is unable to hang on any longer and they both fall to the ground, with Belial being crushed beneath Dwayne's body as a crowd of onlookers stare at the spectacle. Mm. That was delicious. So are you. Come on, have some more. No, really. I've had enough. Nonsense. We're just beginning. Listen, if I have any more, I'm liable liable to... That's all right. I like you drunk. You're cute when you slobber. Shit. Excuse me for a minute, love. Dr. Cutter speaking. This is Nate Owen. Who? Harold. Harold, I thought I made it clear you weren't to call me again, ever. You remember Lifflander from Glens Falls? Well, a few days ago he left a message on my answering service that I urgently get in touch with him. So? So, so today a young man comes to see me, about 20 years old, using a phony name, and nothing's wrong with him except he's from Glens Falls and he has a deep scar running down his right side. Please, Harold, I'm in the middle of dinner. But what he said about Liftlander, I've been trying to get him and I get no answer, and this kid says it's because Liftlander is dead, murdered, cut in half! Calm down now, Harold, and pay attention. Ready? Neither of us know any Dr. Lifflander, and neither of us have ever been in Glens Falls, but one of us wants to get back to her dinner. Good night. Sorry about that, Cuddles. Now, where were we? It's quite rare to have a film like Basket Case, one that's clearly low-budget and restricted by it somewhat, but... It also manages to pack in brutal gore, zany characters and a huge injection of heart. You certainly couldn't accuse this film of being boring or limp in the passion department, whilst at the same time you can't really classify it as a masterpiece either. Basket Case follows the hugely interesting tale of Dwayne, a meek young man who arrives on the high-octane streets of New York with a strange basket, inside of which is the monstrosity Belial a deformed parasitic twin of Dwayne's who was unceremoniously removed by three surgeons who live in the very city that the pair are visiting, with bloody revenge on their agenda. Right away, the film already gives us a very rich setting to base the oddball plot to. I mean, it's New York City at its grimiest. Neon lights, scuzzy sidewalks, streetwalkers galore, and of course 42nd Street-esque cinemas and theatres. It has its fair share of strange city folks too, like the drug dealer who literally seems to have every drug under the sun, or the mad woman who recounts a detailed story of Room 7's previous occupant, only to suddenly walk away as soon as the story's done. In the case of the latter, she resides at the location where the majority of the action is set, the Hotel Broslin, which is a veritable microcosm of everything that the city represents. Alcoholics, thieves, the mentally ill, unscrupulous landlords, gangbangers, pimps, prostitutes, junkies, newbies, etc, etc. The character of Casey is particularly representative of this, with her listing everything that the building has to offer. Keyhole peepers, cockroaches as big as dogs, saxophones playing at four o'clock in the morning, that crazy broad from across the hall, winos pissing on my doorstep. 
I mean, she's also a prostitute, and there's so many instances of the smiley face around her apartment, I just can't help but think of LSD subculture. Even the characters outside of the hotel are indicative of many of the issues that arise from the underbelly of a large city, like the surgeon's needleman, representing unprofessionalism with his very dirty surgery, unkempt appearance and lack of scruples when operating on an unwilling young boy, or even Cutter, who's plying a young man with alcohol so clearly that there's some predatory interest in his body. Sharon seems to represent just being stuck in a dead-end job with no way of escape, until Dwayne shows up, that is, while the lone police officer in the film is portrayed as rather ineffective, which is quite typical for a film of this nature, of course, but it does invoke the age-old argument of cops being corrupt or useless in the big city. Dwayne and Belial, despite their strange relationship and prominence as the two protagonists, seem to slot right in with the crazy menagerie of characters in the sleazy version of New York. I mean, a guy with a deformed freak brother in a basket would just somehow seem to fit in with the varied crowd of the Mad Hotel. The relationship between Dwayne and Belial is silly at most times, such as the exaggerated scoffing of a dozen burgers and hot dogs, and the hilarious scene of Belial hating the TV set and going on a tantrum, but... At the same time, there's some heart in it too. I mean, the way they communicate telepathically is a really interesting touch. And Dwayne genuinely comes across as someone who actually cares about Belial when no one else did. The whole procedure of surgically removing Belial and then throwing him out in the trash has a bit of a smattering of similarity to the concept of ad hoc abortions, with a whole new angle of infanticide as the father advocates the death of his deformed son, even naming him after a beastly figure from the Bible. Apart from Dwayne, the only other sympathetic character to Belial is the aunt, who has a very significant line. She's reading the boys a line from my favourite Shakespeare play, The Tempest. Be not afeard, the isle is full of noises, sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about mine ears, and sometimes voices that, if I had then waked after long sleep, will make me sleep again. And then in dreaming, the clouds me thought would open and show riches ready to drop upon me that, when I waked, I cried to dream again. This line is spoken by Caliban, who, in the play, is a monstrous humanoid rather like Belial. He also attempted to rape the daughter of Prospero, who's the thaumaturge who's the play's main protagonist, which is quite reminiscent of Belial's murder of Sharon, which has clear sexual overtones. The speech in question is is most memorable, really, as the previously bestial Caliban shows humanity by trying to quell the fears of a visitor to the island. At the same time, his speech confirms that he has dreams of peace and beauty and just living a normal life above his wretched existence. He literally dreams that heaven will open up to him and shower him in the riches of a normal acceptance in society, so much so that he'd cry upon waking to the grim reality that he's both ostracised and demonised. No more fitting is this reference when talking about Belial. He too wishes for nothing more than normality, and for a long time he endures the scorn of his own father, eventually being ripped from his sibling and thrown away to die. It's only understandable that he wants revenge, but there's of course the other element of his character. He's jealous of his brother Dwayne. I mean, being nothing more than a head and some stumpy arms, Belial is obviously disabled when it comes to certain aspects of adult life, but he's just simply unable to cope with this reality. His brother tiptoes around these subjects by trying to distract him with food or TV, but eventually Belial becomes aware of Dwayne's advantages over him, 
or specifically the ability to charm a woman and initiate sex, which, in one of the most hilarious scenes in the film, Belial goes on a vandalistic tantrum when he realises that Dwayne has left him to go out with Sharon. I mean, the scene's in stop motion too, so it has a real shaky charm to it. While the specifics are extreme, the situation is rather common both in films and real life, where a younger sibling ruins an older sibling's chances of sexual activity through interfering, I mean effectively cock-blocking them. In this situation, however, Belial decides to remedy the situation himself as any immature block of flesh would. He decides to make love to Sharon first. In quite a bizarre sequence which implies that Belial has absorbed part of Dwayne's consciousness, Belial now has red eyes and a reshaped facial expression, presumably a primitive way of making himself look like Dwayne. He then travels the streets to Sharon's address. All the while, Dwayne is experiencing this in dream form, as himself running through the streets completely naked, which is again referencing Caliban's vision. Obviously, I enjoyed this sequence, but the climax of this, if you'll excuse the pun, is that ultimately, Belial is unable to perform for Sharon anyway. I mean, the scene is clearly a rape regardless, as Sharon is asleep firstly, and when she does awaken, she clearly doesn't consent to a bizarre lump of flesh dry-humping her. This combination of frustration and fear causes Belial to choke Sharon to death, completely shattering the fraternal bond he and Dwayne have with each other. Their subsequent fighting ends with both of them falling out of the hotel window to their supposed deaths, which is probably the only way it could have ended, really. With the whole subtext of Caliban and the backdrop of so much debauched city behaviour, Basket Case not only paints itself as a fun, energetic thrill ride, but an incredibly intelligent piece of work too. It's sometimes not enough, though, for a film to just be intelligent, but thankfully the film has catered towards the horror crowd with adequate gusto. The film's death sequences are delightfully plasma-soaked, with stranglings, gougings, scratching, disembowelling, stabbings, you name it, it's probably got it. Some of the highlights are Needleman's very protracted death, just which seems to ooze blood for an entire eternity. Dr. Cutter's death, though, of having multiple scalpels jammed into her face is a near-iconic image which really sets up just how manic the violence and the cheese factor is in the film. I also quite like the subtle message that her profession is quite literally being shoved back in her face. Quite poetic, really. The general scuzz and the sleazy atmosphere really helps to keep the picture as authentically grindhouse as you can get, so connoisseurs of grime will also be kept wonderfully enchanted by the proceedings. While, as mentioned before, some of the sequences of Belial were stop-motion, some of them also used a puppet in most of the other scenes, whereas for some of the more frantic sequences, like the attacks or Sharon's murder, director Henenlotter simply used a glove to simulate Belial's character. Dwayne was played by actor Kevin Van Henterick, who reappear in the sequels Basket Case 2 and 3, which I guess spoils the fact that they do seem to survive their fall at the end of this film. He also appeared in Brain Damage from the very same director. Sharon was played by actress Terry Susan Smith, who was also in the TV series Sundays. Interestingly, the actress actually had a shaved head due to being part of a punk band, so she did have to don a wig for this role. The kind-hearted prosy Casey was played by Beverly Bonner, who'd reprised the role for the sequel Basket Case 2, and she also played the same character in Frankenhooker. She was also in Basket Case 3 as well, but notably she didn't star as Casey. And she also appeared in the later movie Bad Biology under the pseudonym Casey Belial. That's pretty much it though in terms of the actors. Basket Case was a very small production and so the players involved didn't really branch out into too much else. 
Frank Henenlotter was the director of Basket Case, but he tripled up as the writer and the editor too. This was clearly a passionate piece of work for him as he'd made two additional sequels and a bunch of other similarly themed trashy epics, like Frankenhooker, Brain Damage and also Bad Biology. In recent years, though, he's turned to making some interesting documentaries, such as Herschel Gordon Lewis, Godfather of Gore, and also Chasing Banksy. Producer Arnold H. Brock went on to produce Graveyard Shift 1 and 2, while Edgar Yevins returned on most of Hen and Lotta's future work. So too did composer Gus Rousseau, as well as the cinematographer Bruce Torbit, whom actually we've mentioned before on Nasty Pasty. He was Paulie, who was the unfortunate hobo who was melted on the toilet in street trash. Not only that, but he reappeared as an artist character in Hen and Lotta's Frankenhooker. Assisting Hen and Lotta in the editing was Linda Schubel Sundlin, who actually went on to quite a bit of success in editing films like The Rugrats Movie, The Sixth Day, Men in Black 2, Night at the Museum, The Green Hornet, The Green Lantern, Amazing Spider-Man 2, and also the remake of Ben-Hur. But finally, there were the stars of the show, the special effects guys. First up was John Caglione Jr., who worked on Friday the 13th Part 2, The Hunger, Amityville 2 The Possession, Amityville 3D, Manhunter, uh, Poltergeist 3, The Blob Remake, Dick Tracy, Frequency, Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, Sweet Home Alabama, and The Dark Knight. Assisting him was Kevin Haney, who had equal success with Amityville 3D, Chud, uh, Cocoon, Poltergeist 3, Driving Miss Daisy, Dick Tracy, The Addams Family, Death Becomes Her, Hocus Pocus, Addams Family Values, The Shawshank Redemption, Austin Powers, AI Artificial Intelligence, Planet of the Apes, Iron Man 3, Divergent, and even Guardians of the Galaxy. The film released in theatres in April of 1982, where the film gained success as a midnight movie. It did make it to UK VHS in September of 82 from Palace Video, who were a younger, cultish sort of distributor who were fans of cult horror personally. They were somewhat notorious at the time, though, as they'd released Evil Dead, which was obviously pounced on vociferously for its obscenity, and it became one of the poster boys for the Video Nasty scandal. Perhaps it is due to this, then, that the Basket Case film suffered the way that it did. Palace's version of Basket Case was slightly cut, but it would have been prime material to be seized. And indeed, the film was seized in a police raid during October of 1984. The offices of Alternative Video were raided, with 90 titles in total being seized. It's unknown as to the identity of all of the offending articles, but it was confirmed in August of 1985 when the court case proceeded that some of the films were Section 3 titles, like Friday the 13th, Part 1 and 2, and The Thing, the latter of which was actually ordered immediately to be destroyed. But there were some non-nasty titles like Madman, and of course, Basket Case. It seems that the more and more I look at this era, the more I find examples of films that were seized despite not being on any list, so there you have it, Basket Case was unofficially a nasty. Attitudes have long since died down, but as early as 1987, Basket Case was re-released by Palace with the same 35 seconds of cuts, presumably to Needleman's and Cutter's death, as well as the rape scene of Sharon. The uncut version was passed, though, in 1999 from Tartan Video, and it's been subsequently remastered by 88 Films for the Basket Case Trilogy Blu-ray set. 
With Basket Case done, let's just delve into the further sleaze pit of exploitation with 1988's Ratman. A scientist called Dr. Allman checks in on his latest experiment with his assistant Antonio in a dingy laboratory, which is shown to be a very small humanoid, a combination of rat DNA introduced into a monkey's ovum. Believing it will win him a scientific prize, he and Antonio leave him in his cage, only for the cage to be empty shortly after their departure. Sometime later, models Peggy and Marilyn are being photographed by a professional called Mark on a beach when a person nearby is murdered by the small creature. After discovering the body near the rocks, Marilyn and Peggy ask Mark to call the police, but he prefers not to, though he does discover something odd in the background of one of his developed photographs. Peggy is forced to leave her taxi when one of her tyres blows out later that night. Walking the rest of the way, she's suddenly distracted by the sounds of a commotion, and subsequently becomes aware of someone following her. She hides inside a nearby building, pursued by the man who wields a knife, and she eventually hides in a wardrobe. The man is about to converge on her hiding spot, when Peggy notices a creature inside the wardrobe with her, who violently attacks her, causing the knife man to leave. A few days later, a girl called Terry hails a taxi at an airport, only for a writer called Fred to get there first. Deciding to share the taxi, Terry explains that her sister's been murdered and that she has to go to the morgue. When shown Peggy's body, the pair are repulsed, but Terry exclaims that it's not her sister Marilyn. Going to the crime scene, Fred deduces that the model may have been chased inside by a street boom, but actually died of a heart attack according to the medical records. Soon after, another dead body turns up, which also isn't Marilyn, causing Terry to panic about Marilyn's safety, and she asks Fred to help find her. Marilyn, another model called Monique, and Mark are on another photo shoot in the jungle, when another dead body is found, causing the group to head for the nearest town. Sending Monique out to get help at an old abandoned building, Mark eventually explores it himself when she doesn't seem to return. Monique is searching for supplies in a bathroom, when the creature emerges from a toilet and savages her to death. Eventually, Mark and Marilyn are picked up by Dr. Allman and Antonio, who tends to their wounds. Whilst Marilyn showers, the small creature infiltrates the house, and after discussing all the corpses that Mark has found, Allman deduces that the creature is loose and asks that Antonio remain awake to recapture it. It nonetheless attacks Marilyn in bed at night, causing her to run over to Mark, only for her to discover that his body has been ripped apart. Antonio subsequently goes out to recapture the creature in the lab, but is ambushed and has his eyes gouged out before the monster devours him. 
Allman is forced to come clean to Marilyn, explaining that it is the reason that no one has stayed around, but he's utterly convinced that it should be allowed to survive. Terry and Fred continue traipsing through the wilds on her sister's trail, whilst Allman is attacked by the creature and killed, forcing Marilyn to search for the keys on his corpse. She finds them and then attempts escape in the truck, only to be found by the creature. She locates a gun inside the house and fires at the creature ineffectively before barricading herself into a pantry, blocking the door with a refrigerator, just as Terry and Fred are nearing the doctor's house in their car. As day breaks, Marilyn awakens and is killed when she opens the refrigerator, with the creature bursting out and attacking her face. Fred and Terry arrive to find the house deserted, with only the corpses of people laying around, including Marilyn. They return to the police, who recovers all the evidence from the crime scenes, only for the creature to have hitched a ride inside Marilyn's bag, whereupon it peeks out at the airport and slashes a clerk's throat. The bag is handed eventually to Terry, unaware of its contents, who checks it in at the airport on hers and Fred's ways home. As the plane takes off, the screams of the passengers are heard. hybrid you saw is my greatest achievement and comes from the crossing of two species. The first time I saw it, I was convinced it was a miracle. I thought I would win the Nobel Prize. It took me 20 years of experiments, but I created that hybrid. Then it escaped. The village people were very frightened. Three girls had disappeared, and people began talking about a curse. Some said that God wanted to punish them for their sins that he had sent a terrible monster, half man, half rat. I realized, obviously, that it was my hybrid. Then, everyone ran away. Suddenly, abandoned San Martin. Two days later, I went to San Martin. And it was there. It was then that I saw it. Why didn't you tell the police? I must admit, I committed a great mistake. You didn't tell anyone anything, right? I thought, I thought it was my big chance. A discovery that would have brought me fame and fortune. The creation that would win me a career in America. I wanted to capture him. Alive. And because of that, a lot of people have died. Wait a minute. At first, it wasn't certain that this creature was responsible for the deaths. No one, no one could have said that. It seemed so harmless. But what kind of a monster is it? It's not as impossible as it seems. It has both simian and rodent characteristics. I don't know what caused this, but it also secretes a powerful, deadly venom for which there is no known antidote. Its intelligence is surprising. It has the instincts of a rat and the intelligence of a monkey. That's quite a combination, a dangerous combination. Only someone trained could capture it. It shuns bait and avoids all kinds of traps. It recognizes all types of weapons and sometimes adopts precise, thought-out tactics. 
did you know a rodent can smell a man ten kilometers away? That it can adapt to any environment? That in one year a pair of rats can produce two thousand offspring? Now, just imagine if this creature were endowed with higher intelligence. It'd be terrible. Wouldn't it to destroy it? And with further experiments, I can get rid of the poison. It must be allowed to survive. It's not often in a film of this nature that you can have a legitimate actor in makeup portraying a tiny rodent monster that goes around hacking people to bits. There's a few unique oddities about this trashy exploitation film, but let's start from the beginning. The film is directed by Giuliano Carnameo, whom we've mentioned before on The Case of the Bloody Iris. This juxtaposition just goes to show how varied and zany his filmography really was, as despite the similarity in terms of female nudity, the elegance of his Jello film doesn't really match the sleazy, grungy feel that this film has. Ratman does get a few things right, and they're usually exceptional when it does, but for everything that's done well, there's a huge miss, which renders it so jumbled and mismatched that it does leave the film a little frustrating. One of the film's great successes is the film's antagonist himself, the Ratman, or Mousy, as Allman affectionately refers to him as, played by the extremely distinctive Nelson De La Rosa in a role which otherwise might seem degrading. The Ratman is an extremely unique and a novel antagonist. He's a sneering, murine creature of very small stature, a bedraggled, unkempt dirtiness, and large teeth and claws to boot. Not only is it incredibly refreshing to see an actual human portraying such a unique character, but the monster's abilities of being able to attack with such ferocity are also a marvel. The Ratman's victims are no match for this beast, being liberally torn apart within seconds due to Mousy's ability to not only sniff humans out quickly, but his knack of hiding in very tightly confined spaces, including some standout moments in a refrigerator and a toilet. The latter of which is quite notable as it gave shameless films quite an outrageous premise for their tagline of the film. He's the critter from the shitter. Unfortunately, it's not all good news. De La Rosa's character is woefully underutilised, to a point of near criminality. When he's on screen, he utterly steals the show with both his unique appearance and the special benefit of using a real actor. But the film's direction often has him hidden when the kills are being committed, or having the murders shown slightly off-screen with only a smattering of the violence being shown. Considering the filmmakers had such a USP, they kind of blew their chances of showing off their star to his full potential. The film would have been so much better for featuring more often, especially considering the rest of the film is so distinctly unrestrained. There's also some of the more minor gripes too that have more to do with the writing, like the fact that Mousy's claws have a deadly venom that can kill a human in seconds. Not only is this not true, as several of his victims are still writhing after minutes of being attacked, but it's not even needed, as he just tears their throats out or plucks eyeballs out anyway. Blood loss is just clearly far more effective visually, so the venom angle adds nothing to the mix other than confusion. And so too is the idea of mentioning his perfect sense of smell, able to detect humans from 10 kilometres away. If that's the case, why isn't he heading straight for the largely populated town near the airport? Having seen the film, though, it's probably just because boobs are more enticing. 
Even the notion of how he escaped is dealt with so matter-of-factly, you'd be forgiven for thinking that you've actually missed a scene. Then we get to the characters, or more specifically our protagonists, Fred and Terry, and to a lesser degree, Marilyn. Fred's clearly on vacation, and Terry is solidly on the island to identify the erroneous remains of her sister. So far, so typical. But the whole idea that Fred abandons his entire holiday to cavort around with Terry on the trail of loads of dead bodies and her missing sister is quite frankly astonishing, even by Italian movie standards. From what we can see in the film, he literally seems to have one drink at his hotel bar, has a bit of a read, and then just gallivants away with a woman he's met a mere ten minutes ago. Marilyn is similarly vacuous for a dotorogonist, with no real function other than to get hysterical and occasionally strip and shower provocatively. Which isn't a bad thing, necessarily, but her plotline basically ends in her off-screen demise, without her even meeting Terry and Fred. It just seems to leave a bitter taste in the mouth. The plot itself doesn't seem to gel either as a result, because Fred and Terry never directly encounter the Ratman. It just simply lurks in the background one scene when Terry's in a corridor. It's more than a little embarrassing when the main heroes don't meet the main villain. Unless, of course, it's on purpose, like in Luc Besson's The Fifth Element. Here, though, it just comes across as a gross case of bad plotting. Still, it's not all bad, though, as both David Warbeck and Janet Agram were incredibly popular in the Italian exploitation scene, and ardent fans will no doubt be charmed and reassured by their presence. The police, too, are your expected level of incompetence and stupid, but it's never done to an annoying degree, and it only adds to the film's ludicrous and humorous premise. Allman's character, too, is basically laughter-inducing. I mean, did he actually think genetic experimentation to this degree is Nobel Prize-worthy? Huge logic leaps like this are part and parcel of Italian scuzz, but none are more brazen or as downright demented as the film's finale, which not only has the Ratman sneaking into the airport via Terry's bag, but has him kill a baggage handler before being loaded onto the plane anyway. I mean, in real life, not only would a living creature have been detected in someone's bag nigh instantly, but a murder in the luggage section would be grounds for an immediate lockdown of the entire airport. Still, it's incredibly amusing to think that an entire plane of holidaymakers ends up being slaughtered by a little rat creature. Or maybe I'm just being a gleeful sadist. Then we get to the overall feel of the film. It's amazingly atmospheric, with huge pockets of umbral menace around the large expanse of empty buildings and tropical woodlands. It has smatterings of jungle romps, there's some gritty giallo sort of influence, and then there's the smothering heat of a zombie film all rolled into one. The deaths in the film, when they happen, are suitably frantic and gory. I mean, they do lack a little in detail, and they sorely miss Della Rosa's presence, but the spirit is certainly there. The sleaze of female nudity and voyeurism is present too, but not too overpowering, and the expected silliness of the fodder is reliably on hand to provide us with our entertainment. The setting it is really great for the film's purposes. It's just marred somewhat by the disjointed story and the plot, which doesn't really take advantage of its natural menace as much as it could. The most successful bit of horror to me was Peggy's travelling down the alley and being followed by a mugger, only to eventually get into the wardrobe where the rat creature murders her. If the film had either been more in this vein consistently, or just doing the all-out mad creature vibe as it does when Marilyn is cornered in the pantry, I think the film would have been much more successful. As it stands, the film does fall short a little of the expected fun levels, especially since the trailer looks so guiltily enticing. 
While I understand I've trashed the film a bit, be assured that I actually did enjoy the film. Tonal inconsistency is certainly no reason to discount a film's effect, and the film is daring enough to be enjoyable and memorable. The most battle-hardened horror fan might wish it just went a little bit further to cement its cult status, but equally, the connoisseur can't complain too much either. There's so much more worse films than this. Yes, Panic, I'm looking at you. Fred was played by the wonderful David Warbeck, whom we've seen before, along with his co-star, Swedish starlet Janet Agron. Both of them were in the just recently mentioned, infinitely worse, Panic. One of the few films that I've covered which I've disliked almost through and through. The pair had also been, though, in a few video nasties themselves, like Warbeck was in The Beyond and The Last Hunter, whilst Anne Agron was in Lindsay's Eaten Alive. Joining them in the video nasty stakes anyway was Werner Pockerth, whom we've encountered before on Cat and Nine Tales and Terror Express. He too was in some video nasties as well, like uh, Devil Hunter from Jess Franco and Bloodlust from Swedish director Marianne David Vida. Arguably, though, the star of the show is the Dominican actor Nelson De La Rosa, who's earned the accolade as one of the shortest people of the 20th and 21st century, measuring just two feet and four inches high. He reportedly suffered from microcephalic osteodysplastic primordial dwarfism type 2, but he was never formally diagnosed with anything. Ratman was his debut film, presumably because the shoot took place in the Dominican Republic, but De La Rosa actually rose to prominence all over the world from this one little appearance. He made travels with circuses, he made appearances in other movies like Cross Mission and the 1996 version of The Island of Dr. Moreau, and he even married and had a son. He tragically passed away though in 2006 at the age of 38 from heart failure, but his incredible life deserves a documentary I'd say. His influence is still felt in popular culture today, because apparently he's credited with inspiring the characters of Mini-Me from Austin Powers, as well as the character of Kevin in South Park. As mentioned at the beginning, we've encountered Giuliano Carnameo before on the case of the Bloody Iris, but it also seems to be the case for the majority of the other crew members. The film was written by veteran writers Dardano Cecchetti and Elisa Briganti, while the producer was Fabrizio De Angelis. The composer from Zombie Flesh Eaters 2 worked on this, Stefano Minetti, whilst the editor Vincenzo Tomasi we've encountered previously on the aforementioned god-awful Panic. However, it's not all old news, as the special effects were done by a chap called Franco Giannini, who went on to work on Fulci's 1990 movie Demonia, while the film was assisted in the editing by Rita Antonelli, who had quite a large drawer of horror films on her copybook like Lizard in a Woman's Skin, Cannibal Holocaust, House on the Edge of the Park, The Black Cat, Manhattan Baby, Conquest, The Devil's Honey, and Killer Crocodile 1 and 2. Released originally in April of 1988 as Quella Villa in Fondo al Parco, which roughly means the villa at the bottom of the park, it's unknown whether this was a cinema release or whether it just went straight to VHS. I imagine it probably would have been the cinema, though, despite it not receiving the same treatment overseas. It didn't get a VHS release in the UK, and even if it did, it was far too late to the Video Nasty Party, as the ship had sailed several years before. It did get an obscure Greek VHS in 1988, whilst a US VHS release followed in 1989, so it was around for the really ardent collectors. But the first time it received an official release in the UK was from Shameless Films in 2008, which is fully uncut, 
and it has a most amusing cover art which parodies Jaws. It is available then quite cheaply for any trash addicts like me to get hold of, but I'm absolutely sure that you'll find something to enjoy. Well, that's the critter from the shitter over with, and it's the last I've got to say on this week's episode. It feels weird to be back after such a long while, but I'm back in the swing now of my weekly ramblings. As usual, if you've got any feedback or opinions on any of the films themselves, do let me know by getting in touch through social media. I'm available at Nasty Pasty Pod on Twitter, or you can just search Nasty Pasty Podcast on Facebook. I don't mind any form of chatter, really, about the films that I've covered, that I will cover in the future, video nasties, or even just horror films in general. Please, guys, I just want someone to talk to... Next week, we're taking a different geography-based approach to our choices, so I've decided to tackle two location-based horror films that feature the setting as just as much of the film's horrible effect as the antagonist itself. They are 1988's Amsterdam and 1973's Don't Look Now, featuring both the iconic locations of Amsterdam and then Venice. Until then, thank you all for tuning in, and I do hope you've enjoyed listening as much as I've enjoyed rabbiting. Adios, amigos. Adios.